All right. Uh, Today's scripture reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Uh, Please listen to the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he left his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the peoples out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, if I come to the peoples of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark. Well, at New Life, we would say that the vision that we have for our church, what we hope to see come about, what, if we can be a faithful presence in God, might bless our efforts and answer our prayers, here's what would happen. That we would see a gospel movement where lives radically change, families flourish, and our city prospers. And that's straight from, you know, sort of the mission, vision, pamphlets, and white papers that we've all, the leaders, got together and wrote on the life of our church. I know, thrilling stuff. But honestly, for us, it really is thrilling stuff. Yes, I have sat through my fair share of meetings where I have gone to see a gospel movement where lives radically change, feelings, stories, and our city prospers, right? But we really do want to see lives radically change families flourish, and our city, the city of Irvine, these neighborhoods that we inhabit, we want to see them prosper. 
becoming all that God would have intended humanity to flourish and be. Now, how do we want, how, how is that going to happen? Is kind of the next question then. All right, so what do we do to get from here, right, to lives changing and families flourishing and the city prospering? How do we make that happen? Well, you can kind of see that literally written inside your worship program and on the front and on the back through these four words, behold, belong, become, and bless. Behold, belong, become, and bless. Now, these words are important because it kind of defines the strategy for how we're going to go about ministry here at New Life. But the reason that it, you might find it particularly important is because we think it's kind of a good heuristic, a good gauge for your own life spiritually. That is, you can look at those four categories and you can kind of take stock of your own life and you can take stock of how you're doing in each one of those areas. What is your sense of beholding of the glory and holiness of God? What is your sense of belonging both to God, in God's people, here at this church? What's your sense on how you're becoming more of what God's called you into being? And then how are you going about living in this idea, this concept that we use, you know, blessed to be a blessing? How are you taking all of these things God does and works in our own lives and then taking that out into the world to flourish? So we think it's a good heuristic for you. Now, look, as we enter into this this morning, I know that this might kind of feel like, um, as I was joking with some of our leaders this morning, you know, like dad's about to come home, everyone get it together, okay? Because Pastor Jeff, who is our lead pastor here, has been on sabbatical since mid-May, not that anyone's counting, and as he's been on sabbatical, he's now two weeks out of from returning. And so it's kind of like, I don't know if you had this experience, right, where like things were just chaotic, and then mom, who's just at her wit's end, is like, your father's going to be home soon, and I'm going to tell him everything, all right? And that I'm kind of like right now, like, guys, Dad's coming, let's get it together. But I promise that's not what all of this is about. The reason that we want to look at these four words right now over these next few weeks is because we want to help you step into the community and the purpose that God has created you for. You know, I understand that the name of our church brings with it all sorts of you know, great opportunities to make puns, but we really want you to experience the new life that God has given you, right? And that's not just a coy, nice, cheeky way to get you to sign up for small groups, you know, or start giving 1% more next week or join one of our teams. No, what we really do want you to be blessed. We really want you to be able to step into the community and the purpose that God's created you for. And we know that that's going to happen through beholding, belonging, becoming, and blessing. And so this morning, we're going to tackle that first one, and we're going to see how beholding really is the beginning. And there's few stories that are as powerful at explaining this point, though there are lots of stories in the Bible than this famous example of the burning bush that Mark read for us from Exodus chapter 3. And what we're going to be able to see as we look into this is what does it mean to behold? And then how can we know if that's 
really happening in our lives. Right? Because if I said that these behold, belong, become blessed, that those four words are a good heuristic for you, a good gauge for how you might be doing spiritually, well, let's look at that first one. What actually does it even mean to behold? And then how do you know if you're doing it right or not? And is it even something you can do right or not? And that's what we're going to look at. Those two questions. So this first one, what does it mean to behold? And I want you to see that we are actually called to experience God. Don't get me wrong. I understand how strange that might sound from a Presbyterian minister that we're going to talk about experience, right? And you're like, whoa, hold on. Are we, are we going to get really spiritual this morning? Right? But yes is the answer. We, we actually are supposed to have an experience of God. That's what this text points out for us, that we both understand God on an intellectual level, but that it actually needs to affect us on a heart level as well. So what do I mean by that? Well, right away you can see that this burning bush incident, this idea of this bush that's on fire but not being consumed, all kicks off this concept of what it means to know God, that it's God who calls to us as God calls to Moses. Moses wasn't looking for this, but God comes into his life with it. Now, when you look for the word behold in this text, right? So I know it's family worship, the third to fifth graders, if you're following along, you might look at the word behold. And if you looked for the meaning there, you would just see like, it kind of means to underscore. Like in verse two, behold, there was a burning bush. Like, okay, I guess like, wow, there was a burning bush. Or if you skip down to verse 9, and now behold. But behold, the concept biblically that we want to get across is not just like, hey, underscore or highlight this section. But the concept of behold comes with this concept of experiencing, both intellectual and almost metaphysical in a sense. That we know, the Apostle Paul gets across this in his letter to the first Corinthians, where he writes something to this effect. He says, we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So there's this idea of beholding the glory of the Lord and that it begins to change you and work itself out into you differently. Well, how does that happen? Well, you see it because you're going to find God. This kind of experience is going to be both terrific and terrifying. That when God reveals both his glory and his holiness, as we see in this passage, it is both terrific and terrifying. What do I mean by that? Well, first off, when you see this burning bush, when you realize God can somehow dwell with the creation without destroying it and without consuming it, that he makes this bush more brilliant, more glorious, more, actually maybe even more like a bush than any other bush around it because God's presence has descended on it and is in it. That you begin to grasp a little bit of what this means. That, that's terrific. I mean, Moses says that he says to himself, I'll turn aside and see this great sight. So it wasn't like we could just put it on, you know, the table here 
You know, and it's like something you'd see in a special effects movie, like from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. We were just like, oh, look, it's on fire, but not consuming. No, this is something that would have been moving. The way the Grand Canyon is moving. It gripped Moses. And that experiencing God is having that kind of gripping experience. And how do you, how do you have a gripping experience, right? Because we don't have any burning bushes on fire before us now. So how do we kind of begin to know this? Well, we have this experience in this story where we understand that God has given us both the fire and the name. Okay, God's given us the fire and the name. This is kind of how we behold today, is that we understand there's a fire and there's a name. The reason that this happens is because at first you might go, what's the burning bush mean? And then you read a little bit further and you get to something like verse 14 where Moses asks God, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. And it's literally four Hebrew letters and it's essentially the verb to be, which is weird because it could be translated in some ways, I am being itself. I am not one of the beings, I am being. And it gets across immediately right away the magnitude of God. And so you go, how are we supposed to understand that name? You say, oh, well, look back at the burning bush. You go, well, how do we understand the burning bush? You say, well, look back at the name. That one informs the other. You could say it's an acted parable, as the theologian Sinclair Ferguson would put it. That in essence, we have being itself, not another creature, a fire that's never going out. It burns on its own. It has no beginning. It has no end. It needs no fuel. It is absolutely complete in itself. Past, present, and future. It exists in eternity. And we have wrapped up here God's eternal nature and his self-sufficient nature. All by himself. But unpack that for a bit. If you just even looked at how God speaks to Moses in this passage. He says, he talks in the past tense, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then he shifts to the future tense. That is, this is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. And then he's here now meeting with Moses. God is past, present, and future. He is eternal. Because when, when does a fire that never consumes or burns anything, when, did it, when was it lit? And when will it go out? And the answer, of course, is we see that it, it has always been, it always will be. And it is currently now. Now, as we enter into this, this idea of the fire and the name, let me just give you a little bit of what theologians would say about this, as they would wax on about it is they would say, I am who I am. Who God is is identical with what God is, and also with the fact that God is. As the burning bush has already revealed, God is self-existent. He is the flame that burns without any fuel, the one who is without any aid. God is self-identical. God is pure God, identical only with himself and therefore comparable only to himself, incapable of being named or defined with reference to broader categories or classifications of being. 
Perhaps most importantly for the immediate narrative context, God is self-same, self-consistent. He is eternal and unchanging, the same yesterday and today and forever. What God promised in distant past to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he now pledges to fulfill in the immediate future for Moses and Israel. The continuity between what God was as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and what God will be to Moses and Israel is guaranteed by the revelation of the divine name. He is who he is, self-same, eternal, unchanging. And so he commands Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, as I read that, maybe you are like, this is category breaking, that this is who this God is. And maybe you're a little bit of a theology nerd and you love this kind of stuff. Or maybe you're finding this not terrific, but terribly boring. We're just thinking, okay, what does it matter that God is who he is and will be who he will be and was who he was, that he is eternal and self-sufficient? Well, if you begin to think this out, if you actually came near and grasped who this God was, you would see how this applies to our everyday life. Take this concept of the aseity of God. That is the nice fancy word for his self-existence, that he always has been, always will be, and always is. Now, before you think, oh, there goes Pastor Lewis flexing with all his big theological words like aseity, the only reason I know what it is is because I got it wrong on the test in grad school, and I've never forgotten it since. All right, so aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, for the 55th graders who want to write that word down. All right? That's a word, right, that just gets across how God has always been. Now, you could apply aseity to our anxiety. That is, the worries, the cares, the troubles that we carry that could burden us down. When we understand this is the God who's been controlling all things and will control all things, who has been here before and will be long after, and he's promised to carry me now, I think I'll be okay. Or when you take this idea that God is this absolute perfection in this fire, that's when we begin to see that it's not just terrific or fascinating, but it's actually terrifying. It's terrifying because notice how Moses begins to react to it. Moses, in one sense, is really interested in what's going on with this burning bush. Then once he begins to understand that it's God here, he begins to immediately withdraw. And then God even begins to give him warnings because here's God who's come near to Moses and yet at the same time tells Moses to keep his distance. How does that work? How is it that God has showed up and now God is like, Moses, you better stay back? Or how is it that Moses goes from, I'm so interested in this bush and here I am, God, to now you skip to verse 11. He's like, who am I that I should do this? And it says that he, in, in, when he begins to understand who God is, he begins to hide his face. He doesn't even want to look at the bush anymore that it's gone from this fascinating thing to now it's this blinding thing, where it's almost like the sun, he can't help but be drawn to it, but there's no way he could look at it directly. And there's no way that he could stand in its presence unprotected. Because unlike the sun, he won't just walk away with a bad sunburn, right, or bad effects on his skin later on, but 
in God, in this idea of fire, we see that this fire is burning because it's pure. Now, the mystery is not, why is the fire burning but the bush not being consumed? Because in many ways, you could say that God is making this bush into everything he designed it to be. Making it, bringing out all its glory and its intricacies. The real mystery is how can Moses enter into this and not be consumed? Because as God's presence makes this bush more glorious by purifying it, Moses could become more glorious by becoming pure, but the risk, of course, is that he would be utterly consumed by God's presence. And that's why he's terrified. Because if you know anything about Moses up to this point, you know that Moses is a murderer who is on the run, and he has settled for the rest of his life basically to being a nobody in a no-name place. And now he's thinking God's finally found him out. And this fire that burns in its purity, that if Moses comes near it, it will destroy him because Moses knows who he is. Moses feels completely exposed in front of this, that here is this God who knows everything about him, right? That self-existent, eternal nature of God being brought to bear on every little choice, decision, word that you've spoken. All of it coming to the surface in the presence of pure holiness. That's why God tells him, you got to take your shoes off. You cannot walk around this place. You must tread carefully and the very dirt that you would bring from another location into this location is unclean. It cannot come near here. Right? The, the way this has always stood out to me is it reminds me of when we would go outside, we'd play in the snow or usually in the mud or both growing up, and then you'd come to the house and right, mom's standing there at the back door and is like, strip down before you come in here. Right? And we have the same practice now, like take your shoes off at the door. Do not bring all that in here. Now, imagine God's purity and his perfection and his holiness. And he's saying, you, you can't bring that in here. And so now Moses is in a conundrum. How is it that he can stand in the presence of God? And is his life about to be over? How is this? Well, how do we approach the unapproachable? How do we behold the Son? How is God going to solve this mystery of wanting to draw near to us his people and yet telling us to keep our distance? Well, the, the secret is found in verse 2, where it says that the angel of the Lord is in the fire. Now, you could debate this a lot, but the answer is pretty clear as to who is this angel of the Lord. You know, you might ask, was well, it the angel Gabriel? Is it the angel Michael? But we know that it's actually the angel of the Lord as in the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, God himself, is the angel of the Lord here. And we know that because when the angel of the Lord speaks, it's God who speaks. And when God speaks, it's the angel of the Lord who speaks. And that we can actually begin to know God. This problem of being separated from God and yet wanting to get back to him is solved by the angel of the Lord, drawing near to us first, speaking to us and calling us in. 
This angel of the Lord, the, the term that we would use for something like this, is if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see these often, is this idea of a theophany. When God, before incarnating as Jesus, would step into the world and reveal a bit of his glory to people in the times of the Old Testament. But here's what's incredible, is that he steps in in this sense of fire, and as he begins to share this name, we see now the the precursors of the incarnation. How God's going to solve this problem for us? How is the eternal going to dwell with the finite and mortal? And how is that us, finite, could ever grasp, comprehend, begin to even know, gesture towards understanding the eternal? How could that happen? Well, it shows us that God himself can dwell with creation, without ceasing to be God, but without completely overwhelming it. And that is exactly what God does when he enters into this world, and the one that we know is Jesus Christ. That he becomes all of a creature without ceasing to be God and without overwhelming his creation. And that he has the power to walk this line, and, and there are so many ways in which this is made powerful, and the entire Gospel of John is, is outlined around these seven statements of I am. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door. I am the bread. All of these seven statements that he uses in his parables leading up to the death of Jesus and just Jesus' teaching are all these centered around these I am statements because it's showing how God can actually inhabit our world. And yet those are just poor analogies because, of course, Jesus himself wasn't just an analog to God. He was God himself. He is God himself. He always will be God himself. And yet he stepped into our finite space here and now without overwhelming it. And he makes that clear when they come to arrest Jesus in John chapter 18. And they say, who is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And Jesus says, I am. And we're told that all the soldiers literally fall back. But we know that Jesus would enter into not just saying who he, I am, who I am, not just drawing near to us, but he would actually enter into this fire for us. Because if you remember that story after Adam and Eve fall from the garden, right? And then God has to send them out. What is placed at the garden to guard it always? This idea of God's presence, being back in God's presence. It's an angel with a flaming sword. You're like, what is going on here? Well, the concept is this. To get back into God's presence, you're going to have to go through the fire of purification. I mean, we read this in our confession this morning, that God puts us into the fire to refine us, to remove our dross and refine our gold is the imagery. And yet, how is it we can go into the fire and not be totally consumed? Well, it's because Jesus is the one who enters into that fire, who takes that sword so that the way can be opened for us, that we can actually get back into that home that we were created for. So as I wrap up this section, what it means to behold, let me just recap. So obviously there's an intellectual piece to it, 
understanding God as eternal, immortal, God-only-wise, self-sufficient, self-existent, omnipotent, all of those attributes that we see in God, all coming to bear in the being of Jesus and seeing how Jesus is the one who then gives us access to even begin to comprehend and nerd out theologically or weep experientially with this God who would love us in this sort of way, who solves the problem for how is it that he can come near to us, but we don't have to keep our distance anymore. And that Jesus does that. That's what it means to behold, is that begins to not just be part of your mind and intellectual exercise, but something that grips your heart, that changes how you live And so I would like to just give two quick notes then. First is, you may be sitting here thinking, I'm not feeling any of this. You said terrific, you said terrifying, I say terribly boring. I would say this, I understand that, and I have moments like that myself. If that's the constant beating of your life spiritually, that is obviously a problem. It means you, have, you do not get no God. You do not have the sense of beholding because you can't experience it and just be left there. But you may be thinking, which is often an experience of mine as well, I really want that. And I feel like I've experienced that in the past, but I don't have that anymore. Or I'd love to have what Moses had here. How can I have that? I would say this. If you are sensing his absence, and longing for his presence, that very well may be a sign that his presence is working in your life. Because no one naturally wants this. No one naturally goes looking for this. It is only God who ever calls to us first. That is the only way to experience it, is that God is the first mover. And so if you are even finding yourself spiritually dry and thirsty, wanting more, hungering for more. Well, that's the very sign that God himself is at work in your life, preparing you to behold, helping you to long to behold for him. But not only that, I would like you to keep in mind that God only met with Moses at the end of his rope. When Moses came to the end of himself, right? At this point, God wants Moses to go be the deliverer, and there couldn't be a worse time to ask him to do this. Moses has lost all his resources, okay? He's working for his father-in-law. It's family Sunday. I won't make too many father-in-law jokes, but I mean, he's working for his father-in-law, all right? So he's at the end of himself here. He's not young anymore. He's not strong anymore. He's not good looking anymore. He's not rich anymore. He doesn't have access to the palace in Egypt anymore. All of the things that made him a good deliverer, he doesn't have anymore. But it's only when Moses is completely at the end of himself, when God steps in to reveal himself to Moses. All right, so if that's how we behold, what... How do we know if we're doing it then? Because is it merely just like an experience and you get the warm fuzzies, right? Or you now need to go read about all the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, right? What, how do we know if this is actually happening in our lives? And it's not even just something we're making up ourselves and delusional into. Well, I would say the way that we know if we're actually beholding when we see the results of it 
whether we're actually experiencing it, comes from the next three Bs. That is the belong, the become, and the bless. Remember I said beholding leads the way, but we can actually know if we're beholding by how much we're leaning into these other aspects of our lives spiritually, how much we're experiencing our sense of belonging, how much we're becoming, and how much we're blessing. Now, don't worry, I won't go through these too long, but let me just quickly give you a survey, and we'll spend more time fleshing these out over the next few weeks. How do I know if I'm beholding? Well, not only are you called to behold, but we see God here also calls us, as he called Moses, to belong. Notice how God introduces himself, as God often introduces himself in the Old Testament. I am the Lord, your God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice, though, the, uh, your father piece to this. See, if you understand the life of Moses, you'll understand that Moses has never, ever felt at home anywhere in his life has never ever felt really like he's fit in, never ever really been able to experience rest or be comfortable in his own skin, let alone the places that he's found himself. Right, because Moses was an Israelite who was literally, his name means to be plucked out. He was plucked out of the water and adopted by an Egyptian princess. And thus an Israelite who grew up in a foreign palace under a foreign culture but then at the same time was nursed and did know his family a bit and so never kind of felt like he could ever truly be a Hebrew but never could truly be an, Israel, or an Egyptian. And then after he tries to liberate the Israelites from their slavery, they turn on him he, because they see that he's a murderer. He has to run for his life. So now he's in a foreign place. He has a foreign wife, right? Zipporah. He works for his father-in-law. And his firstborn son is named Gershom, which roughly translates to a foreigner, a stranger here, getting across this idea that he dwells in a strange land. Moses has never felt at home in the world, has never felt at home in his own skin. And yet God is now making it clear where Moses has a place. And this always happens is that when you begin to behold, experience the real God, you begin to understand what St. Augustine wrote ages ago, where he says, God is closer to me than I am to myself and higher than anything I could possibly imagine. You see, God knows Moses better than Moses knows himself. And yet Moses, in knowing God, now can become fully himself more than he ever could have apart from God. I know that can sound almost in some ways a little, you know, self-helpy, right? The truth that in knowing God, Moses gets to be everything that God intended for Moses to be. The same way that this bush is, cons is, is in the presence of this fire, that it becomes more glorious and more astounding and fascinating. The same way that as Moses begins to behold God, he becomes more of everything he was created to be. He actually truly becomes himself. 
And what's so amazing is that God, in claiming that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says that he really is good at making terrible men into who they should be. Because we know out of these three men, at least two of them, right, abused their wives, right, and or stood by while they were. They were deceitful. They destroyed their families with their bad patterns of relating and the things that they never repaired in their own lives from their own fathers. They repeated in the lives of their children and they just kept passing it on and on. And yet God says, yeah, that's who I identify with. Those are the people that I make into the glorious creations that I can do in your life what I do with this bush here. Purifying. And that takes us to the next one, which is we're called not just to belong, but to become. Because God really can do in our lives what he does with this this tree, this bush here. The fire makes it more brilliant and yet more itself. And the closer God comes, the more brilliant and amazing it becomes. The same is true in our lives. The closer God comes to us, the more brilliant and amazing we can become. God takes Moses, who after being exposed and wants to hide from God and who is saying, who am I that I should do this? Saying, look, I'm going to take you, shepherd, and I'm, I'm going to turn you into a real shepherd. And you will shepherd millions of people out of the land of Egypt. Just like I would take you, God would take fishermen and he would turn them into real fishers of men. That like this tree, he can make us more brilliant and yet more ourselves, and that we become more and more like that. Now, just to give you an inkling of what that might look like, right, if you think along the lines of this bush, this plant, right? in one sense, the way the plant grows is by stepping into the light. And so in one sense, the way we become more of who God wants us to become, we need to behold more of his glory, more of his light. And yet by becoming more of that, we are beholding more of that, and it creates this positive feedback loop in our own lives. Now, Thank God we can become plants who are pretty resilient in the darkness because God still comes and brings his glory to us. However, you could spare yourself a lot of trouble and heartache and step into the light and all that means for you, engaging in all of the various different spiritual practices that we will get into when we actually get to that sermon on becoming. Because the last thing I want to talk about then is also that we're involved in blessing. That when you really behold something, you want to take part in it, okay? Nothing makes this clearer than, let's say, our Star Wars fans among us, right? What happens? If you really behold Star Wars, you know someone has beheld Star Wars, right? Not just watched it, but beheld it because they want a lightsaber. Am I wrong, right? But you don't just want a lightsaber. It wouldn't be enough to have a lightsaber. You want to cut stuff in half with that lightsaber, right? You know, and this is why grown men go and spend way too much money at Disneyland on toys. No shame. You can always bring me one back, okay? You know, if you, if you right, we're watching the Rings of Power in my house because we're a bunch of Lord of the Rings nerds. And uh, with that, sorry, my wife would want to clarify that she is not watching it and she is not a nerd, but that's just to her shame. So with that being said, Eli and I are watching it together. And, you know, when you really behold Lord of the Rings you want a sword, right? And then you want some orcs that you can kill with that sword. And you want to go on adventures and journeys, and you don't care that it's a lot of walking, and you'll be really tired, and there's no indoor plumbing, right? You have beheld Lord of the Rings, and you want, you want a piece of that. 
The same is true for sports. The same is true for the symphony. And it's actually, again, another positive feedback loop. Because it is those who have played the sport who can behold it the best. They can see all the different intricacies, right? They keep telling me soccer or real football is such a beautiful game, and I find it really boring. But guess what? Never really played soccer. And yet, right, if we went to a wrestling match, you'd be like, this is really weird. Why are these guys in spandex hugging each other and nothing's really happening? And I'd be like, you don't understand the intricacies of this, right? Same is true for the symphony, right? It is those who know music that can behold music in way deeper levels. And so the more that we engage in the work that God is in, the better we can actually behold who the God that is working is. We use this phrase a lot. It's this concept of working out the gospel so that we might work it deeper into our own lives. That's what we're invited into. And God makes that promise to Moses here in verse 12 when he says, when you go, I will be with you. And notice how he also gave him this promise that it would be a sign to you. Which is interesting, right? Because normally we think, show me this is real, right? And then I'll go do it. You could say, well, the burning bush, that's a pretty real sign, right? You're like, well, I mean, like, give me a test. You know, Gideon does the test. Look, I'm going to put a blanket out, and if it's wet on one side but dry all around, I'll know that's a sign. And then I'm going to do it the next day. We'll flip it around. It'll be wet, but then, you know, wet all around, but the blanket will be dry. Give me a sign, God, that you're real, that this is actually happening. And God's saying, look, the sign that this is real and this is actually happening is when you come back to this mountain. You think, well, what's that mean? Because he's on Mount Horeb. And, you know, maybe you're thinking, I have no idea what Mount Horeb is. But you probably do, because if you're familiar with Mount Sinai, you're familiar with Mount Horeb. Mount Sinai is where Moses would go and receive the Ten Commandments from God. This is they're written by the finger of God himself. Talk about an experience of beholding. And yet Moses is on that mountain now. And God says, I will bring you back here. And so in many ways, we know that when we come back next week, that that's a sign for us that God was real in our lives. And then the week after that, when we come back, it's a sign that God is real in our lives. And we have all these markers that when we see it happen again, God is a sign that is real in our lives. And of course, the sign that we have is what we would call the sacrament of the Lord's table. That as we come now to the Lord's Supper, we have this sign of God, past, present, and future. The one who died for us, the one whose banquet table we will dine at, in eternity, and the one who is here with us now to strengthen us. And that as we enter into this practice, as we partake in this sacrament, we behold the glory of God, that he would indwell in common, ordinary elements, so that we could behold his glory and majesty. That the one who tells us we have to keep our distance because of our own sinfulness is the one who draws near and went through the fire of God so that we could sit at this table and that we could experience everything God's intended for us to experience, that we become more ourselves and that we might actually see lives radically change, families flourish, and our city prosper. And so let's pray as we enter into the sacrament now. Father, we thank you for this time. 
We pray that as we partake now in your body and your cup of the covenant, that you would make real to us, that you would help us to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that your presence, your fire would burn in our lives. That it would take all these concepts and make them real. Make them exciting, make them thrilling as we understand the terror of the cross and of the flames that you endured for us so that we can now be known as the children of God forever and ever. Amen.